does whatever pleases him. So God picks the winner, and you would think he would pick the people of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, his beloved people, and instead he picks Babylon as the winner. He delivers Judah into Babylon's hand, and they're exiled, having to walk hundreds of miles to a new kingdom, to a new place, to a new home. That home is what we call exile. They are exiled from their homeland, exiled from where they live. And you'll remember this from last night. Say it with me. Exile is a place that is uncomfortable. It is a place that is un, and it is a place that is un, it is a place that is uncomfortable, unfriendly, uncompromising. And we're going to begin to see that today. We pick up with Daniel and his friends. They're in exile. It's uncomfortable. It's unfriendly. It's uncompromising. And we're going to see the beginning of their story today as they try to figure out what it means to trust Yahweh, that's faithful to God in the midst of exile. Here's how it begins, Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. It says, then the king, the king's name is Nebuchadnezzar, the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family. Verse 4 says, young men. Look at me right now. The story here is about a bunch of young people. When you hear young people, I don't want you to think adults or much older than you. Every bit of evidence we have says that the people we're about to read about in this story and every story are about 17 years old. Raise your hand if you are 17 years old. They're as old as these people. 17 years old, young men, figuring out what it means to be faithful to God. Then it says this in verse 4. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. So don't miss what's happening here. The people of God get exiled from Judah to Babylon. And then what they do is they go, let's find some young people. Let's find some attractive people. Let's find some smart people, some popular people. Let's find those people. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to give them a bunch of food. We're going to give them a bunch of wine for free. We're going to teach them the ways of the Babylonians. And what we're going to do is we're going to do that so that they can turn around and go back to their people and teach them all those things too. Let me see if you recognize this. Take a bunch of young, attractive, talented, intelligent, popular people, give them free stuff, and then they go back and tell the other people about all the free stuff. These peoples were the official first influencers in world history. That's what they were. This is what the Babylonians were trying to do. They were trying to say, here, you take all this free stuff. We'll teach you our religion, our language, our culture, our stories, our customs. And then you go back to the rest of your people and you tell them what we taught you. And here's why this is such a significant part of the story. Because what we need to know is what happened to those first individuals, these teenagers who are being brought in to be taught the ways of the Babylonians, taught how that culture operated, taught about their gods and their customs and their beliefs. I want you to know that's not just the story of what happened here. It's the story of what always happens. So you need to know the Bible is not just a story of what happened one time. It's a story of what happens over and over and over again. And in this story, young people are brought into a culture And they're being formed and shaped and discipled and mentored into that culture. And here's what I want you to know this morning. You are being discipled by someone. Write this down. You are being discipled by someone. You are being formed by someone. Someone is shaping you. Someone is training you. Someone is actually telling you what to believe. And the only question for you in your life isn't, am I being discipled by someone? 
It is who is discipling me, who is shaping me, who is teaching me, who is forming me. And here's how you will know who is shaping and discipling and forming you in your life. You will know who is influencing you by what you consider normal. You will know who is shaping you, discipling you, forming you, and influencing you by what you consider normal. So like growing up in my household, my dad, every Saturday morning, would go out into the yard. He would fire up the lawnmower, and he would mow the lawn. So from a young age, it was normal in my mind that that's what dads do. Dads mow the lawn. So anytime I see someone like hire out someone else to mow their lawn, or a mom is mowing the lawn or something else, it throws me off. Because I grew up and that was normal for me. It was normal that dads would mow the lawn. Or think about it this way, a little more significant. When I was in college, I was part of a camping ministry, kind of like Hume Lake. And every morning when I would get up at the beginning of serving on that camp, I would get up in the morning, the sun was still rising, and before I could even get to my coffee, everywhere I looked, there were young men and women, my peers, reading the Bible early in the morning. And I had already been reading the Bible for a long time, but I started to see them read early in the morning. And it was so normal that they would do that that I started doing it myself. Again, you will know who is shaping you and forming you and discipling you by what you consider normal. You know what some of you consider normal? Some of you consider using foul, vulgar, disgusting, and offensive language as normal. Because everyone around you does it. All your friends use that language, everyone talks that way, all the songs you listen to in your ears have that kind of language, and so you think using offensive, foul, vulgar, racist, and sexist language is totally normal. You're being discipled. You're being shaped by this culture. Again, like the jellyfish, some of you, it's just the culture uses foul language, so you use foul language. For some of you, you're being shaped in the way you dress. For some of you, the whole dress code, modesty up at Hume is so offensive to you. Because you've been so shaped into a normal culture that says it's normal to not dress modestly, to not speak modestly. You are being discipled and you are being formed by our culture. I remember a number of years ago I realized that anytime I disagreed with someone, I didn't want to just express my disagreement. I wanted to win. I wanted to show them I was right. I wanted to smack them down verbally and make sure they knew that I was right and they were wrong. You know what I realized in that moment? I was being formed and shaped by the culture all around us that says the most important thing is winning. That you can't just agree to disagree. That you can't be friends with people who don't see things the way you see things. I was being formed and shaped by our culture. What do I want for you this week? I want you to recognize the forces that are influencing you, the people who are shaping you. I want you to understand that it's not a question of whether or not you're being discipled. It's a question of who is discipling you. These young men know that as they're going to this table, as they're being given free stuff, as they're being taught stuff, that the Babylonian culture is trying to form them, shape them, influence them into their ways, their culture, their God, and their religion. Verse 6 goes this way. It says, among those who were chosen from Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. So you saw that in the video. They look at these people who already have names, Jewish names, godly names, and then he decides to change them. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Here's what I want you to know. Part of the forming and shaping and discipling and influencing of your life is that our culture wants to say things that are true about you. You know what it wants to say? You are a random accident of cosmic evolution. You are here by no purpose and for no purpose. God didn't create you. You just kind of popped into existence. You'll pop out of existence. Your life is meaningless, so you might as well just enjoy it. That is what our culture says about you. It is a lie. That is not true. God created you, young lady. 
Young man, God created you. He saw you. He formed you in your mother's womb. He has a purpose for you. You're here on this planet on purpose and for a purpose. And what often happens to us is we start to believe the lie of a culture that says your life is random, nothing matters, so just enjoy yourself before you die. It tries to change your identity. It tries to change your understanding of yourself. That's what it means to be influenced, formed, shaped, and discipled. Verse 8 says this, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now Daniel goes, I'm not going to defile myself by eating off the table. Now we don't know what this is exactly. There's food laws in the Jewish religion. So maybe there was pork and you're not allowed to eat pork if you're Jewish. And so maybe that's what was going on here. Maybe it was food sacrificed to idols and so he didn't want to do that. But I'm convinced it's something else. I'm convinced that Daniel knows the minute he starts eating food and wine off that table, they will start to influence him and shape him and form him into a Babylonian rather than someone who worships and trusts in the Lord, in Yahweh. That's what Daniel doesn't want to do. And so notice what it says here in verse 8. Look down at the verse. It says that Daniel resolved. He resolved himself. Like in other words, to resolve is to decide ahead of time what you're actually going to do. To decide ahead of time what life is going to actually be like. It's like, this. so uh, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I had to go to the mall, to the Oaks Mall, to make an exchange. Uh, and so she had a, a shirt she bought or something like that. She needed to go exchange it. So she was going to go there. And we said, why don't we go as a family? And so we pack up the three kids in the car, and we're going to head off to the mall. And while she does the exchange, we're going to play in that little play place near the food court in the mall. So that's the decision. We're going to the food court and play place. The kids are going to play. She's going to go exchange something. Now here's the problem. The problem is when my kids go to the mall, their favorite place to go, their absolute favorite place to go is to Wetzel's Pretzels. Yes. They love Wetzel's Pretzels. What they do is they get the little pretzel bites and then we sit on the ground in the mall. They call it a pretzel picnic. It's the best thing. It's what we do with our kids. We love it. But here was the deal a couple weeks ago. My wife and I were kind of knowing, okay, here's where we're at financially, and so we were deciding to save some money. So Wetzel's Pretzels isn't super expensive, but we just decided, no, we're not going to do it. So here's what we did. Before we got in the car, we looked at each other, and we said, our children, they are going to ask for Wetzel's Pretzels, and you and I need to agree right now ahead of time that we are not giving them Wetzel's Pretzels. We need to agree that no matter what happens, no Wetzel's pretzels are happening today. So we made that agreement. We went to the mall. She did the exchange. We played in the play place. And sure enough, they started to ask for Wetzel's pretzels. Now, here's what you need to know about little kids. Little kids have two strategies for getting what they want. The first strategy is that they throw an absolute fit. They throw themselves on the ground, wailing and flying and gnashing of teeth and arms flailing about. It is an effective strategy because sometimes as parents, you're so embarrassed. You're like, I'll give you whatever you want. Just be quiet, right? Here's the other strategy kids use. They use the charm offensive. And that is the decision my children went with this day. See, see my children, um, my oldest, Grace specifically, recently learned the word teensy-weensy. And so she looks at it and goes, Daddy, could I have a teensy-weensy little pretzel? And let me tell you something, I told you last night, she can have anything she wants. I just can't say no to this girl. And so I'm looking at her and every part of me wants to give her a pretzel, but then I look at my wife and we decided ahead of time that no matter what pressure, whether it was them flailing on the floor or the charm offensive, we were going to say no. So you know what we did? We stood firm. We said no. We did not get Wetzel's pretzels that day. We stood firm on our decision. And child of God, you know what I want for you? I want you to decide ahead of time that you're going to stand firm no matter what happens. 
If you're starting middle school this fall, here's what I want for you. I want for you to decide ahead of time what middle school is going to be like. Because everyone's going to be talking a certain way, and everyone's going to be dressing a certain way, everyone's going to be behaving a certain way, but you, child of God, decide ahead of time to be different. Decide ahead of time to be faithful to Jesus. Decide ahead of time. You're not going to speak with vulgarity. You're not going to get into the things everyone else is getting into. You're not going to dress like them, talk like them, act like them, think like them, believe like them. Some of you are starting high school, and it only amplifies from there. You know what you need to decide ahead of time? You need to decide ahead of time that you're cool being called weird. You're just good with it. You don't need to fit in. You don't need to be popular. Because here's the news flash: Every adult leader in this room will tell you high school popularity, you know how much it means later in your life? Zero. None. Absolutely nothing. You know what you decide? I'm going to walk in holiness. I'm going to walk in righteousness. I'm going to love people. I'm going to serve people. I'm going to be different than everyone else. You decide ahead of time. High school seniors, as you start applying to colleges, may you have in your mind, I'm going to go to this school, but I'm going to be different. I'm not going to act like, believe like, behave like, speak like everyone else. I'm going to be different. What do you do? You decide ahead of time. You know what part of the point of camp is? Part of the point of going to summer camp in the week of August that we're in right now is that you would decide before the school year starts what kind of individual you're going to be. That's what Daniel does. He decides ahead of time, and then it goes this way in verse 9. It says, now God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Don't blow past that verse. I have people tell me all the time, God would never interfere with free will. God would never make me do something I don't want to do. And I go, have you read this verse? Verse 9, God caused the official to show favor and compassion to David. It's like the official didn't want to be compassionate to David, and God was like, nope, you're going to do that. And you're like, God can't do that. God can't interfere with my free will. And here's what I go. God is who he is, and you don't get a, a vote. I say, you get no input on this. God is who he is. He is Yahweh, the one who is who he is. If God wants to interfere with your free will or anyone else's free will, he gets to do that and you get no complaint. And you want to, we want to know why that's the best news in the world. Because if God just sat there and goes, well, I can't interfere with their free will. I just have to stand back and do nothing. Then God is useless in this world. But if God can step in and change even the most hardened heart, it means there's hope even in the most hopeless situation. That's what our God can do. That's what he does here. And then in verse 10 it says this, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord my king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men, young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So notice what's happening. The official is going to say to Daniel, listen, I want to help you out here, but I'm actually afraid of someone. And see what he's afraid of in verse 10. Look there. He is afraid of the Lord. Notice it's a lowercase l, not a capital L. So this isn't Yahweh. This is just someone who's in charge. The Lord, my king. In other words, this official actually wants to help Daniel out but he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it because he's afraid. And he's not going to do it because he's afraid because there is a principle that's true in this official's life and it's true in your life too. I want you to write these words down. It's so significant. Here's the principle. Whatever you fear most will control you. Whatever you fear most will control you. So I want you to know this, that fear is not just an emotion we have, it's actually something that controls and dictates our life. Like, let me put it to you this way. So if you were to ask my wife, Danny, what you are most afraid of in the whole world, easily she would say one thing. She would tell you snakes. She hates snakes. She's terrified of snakes. She does not want to be anywhere near where snakes once were. So here's the thing for my wife. Like, Wildwood is right around the corner from our house. She has never once gone hiking there. Why? Because the snakes are going to find her. 
When we went on our honeymoon in Hawaii in 2013, she never once went in the ocean. I was swimming in the ocean, said, babe, why don't you come in the ocean? She goes, absolutely not. I said, why? She goes, sea snakes. I was like, is that a thing? She goes, it might be. Then I'll never forget this. It's 2013. We got married. We just moved into our apartment. And one day, I'm hanging out in the apartment, and suddenly she goes, Brian! I was like, ah, what? She goes, what have you done? I was like, what did I do? And she brings me into the living room, and in our little apartment, there's a sliding glass door that I had opened up. It was a hot day. I was trying to get a breeze to come through. She goes, why did you leave this open? I said, I was trying to get a breeze to come through. She goes, why would you do such a thing? I was like, why is this a problem? She goes, the snakes are going to slither in. I said, the snakes are going to slither in? She goes, absolutely. Listen, guys, we lived on the second story. And I point this out to her. She goes, they slither up the pipes. Like she was so scared. Notice what's happening here. It's not just that she had an emotional fear of snakes. It's that it actually controlled how she lived. Because whatever you fear most will control you. For some of you, it's not snakes, it's spiders. So you have no interest in picking up rocks here at camp. Because you don't know what's behind it. Because it might just start to crawl up your arm. Ah! 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 So you would never. Shh. For some of you. For some of you, it's not spiders, it's not snakes. For some of you, your fear is the dark. So you're not like a kid who has a nightlight. You're just someone who has a light that's on at night. It's not nightlight, it's just a night light, right? And it's like, why, why, why? Because whatever you fear most will control you. Now, it's funny to talk about snakes or spiders or the dark. But you know what some of you are really afraid of? You're afraid of conflict. And so you do everything you can in your life to make sure there's never conflict. You never say no. You never set boundaries. You never actually step out of anything. You never want to disappoint your mom or your sister or your best friend. Because the most scary thing to you in life is conflict. And whatever you fear most will control you. For some of you, your biggest fear is embarrassment. And so you actually want to put something beautiful into the world, like a song or a piece of art or a movie or something beautiful. And you actually want to do something meaningful with your life. But you're so afraid of being embarrassed. You're so afraid of doing it wrong. You'll actually never do anything risky in your life because you're terrified of embarrassment and whatever you fear most will control you. You know what some of you fear more than anything? It's the opinion of your best friend. So you never actually disagree with her. You never actually say no to her. For some of you, it's not your best friend, it's your mom. And you should honor your mom, but some of you are terrified of disappointing your mom. So you'll never actually do anything in life on your own that God has called you to do because you're always looking to your mom saying like, I just never want to disappoint her. And whatever you fear most will control you. And if it's true that whatever I fear most will control me, and if I want to be faithful to Yahweh in the midst of everything going on in this world, here's what I must do. I must become a person who fears one thing above all else. And that one thing is a person. And that person is God. If you want to be faithful to God in the midst of everything, you must fear God and revere him above all things. Now, sometimes I say fear God, and there's all this stress around that. Because you go, fear God? Aren't we supposed to love God? And the answer is both. You're supposed to fear him and love him. The best metaphor I can give to you is this. Let me show you this picture here of uh, some folks sitting around a campfire. Um, this is a stock photo I got off the internet, so it's not special. I don't know these people, but here they are. And here's what you think about. Think about a fire the last time you sat around it. Fires are inviting. They're beautiful. The reason we sit around it, the reason if there's a fire lit, you'll just kind of see it from anywhere is because it's inviting, it's warm, it gives heat, it gives light, it's a beautiful thing. But the other thing you know about fire is fire is terrifying. That's why you don't play around fire. We have a phrase, don't play with fire, right? Like if this fire leapt out of that little thing into this forest around it, it would be an inferno and we would all die. Here's what you know. Fire, write this down, is two things. It is simultaneously, at the same time, it is inviting and it is terrifying. 
And here's what I want you to know about our God, the Lord, our God, Yahweh. He is both inviting and terrifying. He says, come close to me, experience my warmth, experience my light, but don't you dare play with me. Don't you dare mock me. Don't you dare make a joke of me because I can destroy everything. This is what we believe about our God. He is both inviting and terrifying. He is both worthy of our love and of our fear. And I want you to know this, hear me clearly on this. If you have no fear of God, you do not know God. If you think God is just your buddy and your pal and your best friend and your homeboy and you guys just kind of hang out and everything's all happy and he would never actually tell you what to do, you know something about God, you just don't know the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is simultaneously inviting and terrifying. And for Daniel and his friends, they understand that what they need to do is fear God above all else. Fear God above all things. What they need to do is fear God because they understand. They understand that once they fear God most, they stop fearing everyone else. Here's how it goes in verse 11. It says, Then Daniel said, or sorry, Daniel then said to the guard who was chief official and appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of a young man who ate the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Verse 14. So he agreed to do this and test them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away the choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now listen, this is the story of Daniel and his friends. And instead of eating from the royal table with all the food and wine, they said, we want vegetables and water only. Now I want you to hear me clearly on this. This story is not about their diet. It's about their devotion. This is not about the food. This is not like a story like what you're supposed to do is eat vegetables and water only and then God will love you more. Like first off, that's just not sustainable. That's not like a thing you can do in life and not like physically suffer. But this is about their devotion. This is about them saying to God, I fear you more than I fear the king, and so I'm going to live this way. And then here's what it says. This is wild. They eat vegetables and water only, and it says, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men. Like, in other words, it works. It's fruitful. What they did, the way they acted, the way they behaved actually gave them success, and they're rewarded for that. And here's a question I want to ask you as we close out this morning. The question I want to ask you is simply this. How did Daniel and his friends know not to eat off the table, but rather to eat vegetables and water only? Because it seems kind of random, right? They could have just been like, we'll pass on the wine, or we just don't want that food over there. We'll just pray more. But instead, they decided to do this very specific thing that God wanted them to do, and God blessed them for that. And my question for you is this. How did they know what to do? And the answer to that question is simple. The answer They knew what to do because they knew the Bible. They knew what to do because they knew the Bible. And if you want to know God's will for your life, and you want to know what to do, you must move the Bible to the center of your life because the word of God allows the people of God to know the will of God. The word of God allows the people of God to know the will of God. And if you have ever said to yourself, well, I just don't know what God wants me to do, don't you dare say that while your Bible is closed. You open your Bible, you listen to God, and he will show you his will for for your life. And what I want to plead with you to do this week is to become a people who begin to know and love and study and memorize and think about and talk about and write down verses from the Bible. Because if you just don't care at all what God wants for your life, then go ahead, do your thing. 
But if you want to know what God wants for your life, it will never happen if you do not know the word. It will never happen if you do not know the Bible. And the invitation for you this week is to begin being a student of the Bible, someone who studies it and thinks about it and has a plan. Here's what I've learned over the years. Um, The lucky flip where you just kind of go to the Bible and you're like, I'll read this verse today, never actually works. If you're going to read the Bible effectively, fruitfully, long-term in your life, you need a plan. And here's how I think you can have a plan. Some of you know the plan. Some of you know how to read the Bible. You've been reading the Bible for years. It's an awesome thing. Others of you are like, I'd love to read the Bible. I just have no idea where to start. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you an invitation to talk to a select group of people here about the Bible. If you're the person going, I want to read the Bible. I want to know God's will for my life, but I have no idea how to do it. There's a group of people that I want to actually ask a question to right now. And that is any adult leader in this room. So students, adult leaders, I'm going to ask a question on three. The answer is either yes or no. If a high school or middle school student comes to you this week, Adult leaders, answer this question on three. If they ask you, I would love to read the Bible. I just don't know where to start. I don't even know how to put together a plan. I don't even know where to start. I'm so overwhelmed. Can you help me figure out how to put together a plan so I can read the Bible, not only at camp, not only this summer, but into the school year? If they asked you to do that, would you be willing to carve out time for them to learn how to read the Bible? Adult leaders, on three. One, two, three. Students, students, did you hear that? Like, did you hear the adult leaders in this room? Shh, no, 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 don't miss this, don't miss this. They are willing to carve out time out of their lives to help you understand how to figure out God's will for your life. That is a beautiful and an amazing gift because once you do that, your life starts to change. The year was 2004. It was January 1st. I had been at a winter camp up in Lake Tahoe. Uh, I'm up there with my youth group. I'm a sophomore in high school. And just like some of you, my whole life I had heard, you're supposed to read the Bible. And I had tried and failed and tried and failed, and I come up with all my excuses if I was too busy, I wasn't really a reader, I didn't really understand. I had all my excuses about the Bible. But then January 1st, 2004, I was at Lake Tahoe on this winter retreat. And I got up early in the morning and I went out, and I went out to a dock that was jutting over Lake Tahoe. I want to show that dock to you right here. I took this picture a couple years ago in the summer. But you want you to imagine it's all covered in snow, even the dock. I went out and sat at the very end of the dock, and I had a conversation as a 15-year-old with my creator. I said, God, I want to know what your will is for my life. And if I'm going to know that, I know I need to read the Bible. I know I need to read your word. And God, I've tried before, and I failed, and I don't know why I keep failing, but I really want to do this. I want to read the Bible every day. I want to be a person who really knows your word and knows what you have for my life. That was January 1st of 2004. By the power of the Spirit of God, by the graciousness of God toward me, I've read the Bible every day since. And, and here's what I want you to know. I want you to know I read the Bible every day since, not because I had to, but because eventually it became something that I couldn't do without. Eventually it became something that it was like if I had to choose breakfast through the Bible, I was going with the Bible. That's what starts to happen. You start to listen to God's voice, and then it becomes all that you want. Why? Because as a 15-year-old, I sat at the edge of a dock and talked to the creator of the universe and asked him. I begged him to give me the strength to do it. And here's what I want to challenge every single one of you to do this week. Go find your own dock this week. Go find a tree. Go find a lake. Go find a rock. Go find a spot. Sit before your creator and say, God, I haven't been reading your word, but I want to know your will for my life. So God, would you give it to me? Would you bless me with the ability, with the diligence, with the focus, with the discipline to read your word every day? Because God, I want you to change my life. Because here's what I need you to know. From that dock at 15 years old on January 1st of 2004, in the last 20 years, God has done things in my life that I couldn't possibly have even imagined to ask for. But that's what he does. 
When you read his word, you'll know his will. And when you know his will, the world opens up to you in ways you couldn't possibly imagine. Child of God, go find your own dock this week. Go find a spot to sit before God. Ask a leader for help. And start this week. Don't say, I'll start when I get home. Start today. Tuesday, August 1st, 2023 is your day where you begin to read the Bible every day. And you watch what happens when God starts to show you his will for your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Thank you for Daniel and the example he is to us of his fear of you above all things. God, may we fear you because we know you. May we know you because we know your word. And I pray for the young woman here, the young man, who's going to have that same experience I did at 15 years old. And you're going to change their whole life through your lo their love for your word. God, you accomplish everything you do by speaking. So would you continue to speak to us this week? Give us the courage. Give us the resolve. Give us the faith that Daniel had in you, O oh Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen, amen. Can you guys give it up for Brian? So good. You guys, the point of this morning, the point of this morning is to recognize in what ways do you fear man or do you